Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 223. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 223 you're listening to. My guest today is Doug McBride. Doug is the founder of Gravity Studios in Chicago. He's also a producer and the chief mixing and mastering engineer over at Gravity. Looking forward to bringing you yet another great guest. So, Doug McBride coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, I got some surf music queued up. Let's talk some business. What? Yeah, I know. That's not what you expected to hear. But um, let's raise a coffee cup or a cup of whatever liquid you have and give a cheers to Dick Dale, who passed recently. Thank you, Dick, for everything that you did. Mm. Okay, so, boy, this business aspect of, of being an audio professional, that can be a real challenge. And some of you went to school for it. Some of you didn't. It's not a lot of fun uh, if you're not into it, because I know that you probably don't get up in the morning thinking, what can I do to market myself today? That's probably the last thing many of you think. Some of you may think that way. There's no harm in that, of course. So what about those of you who don't thrive on the business aspect, and what are you going to do about it? Because, you know, it's a business, right? Doesn't matter if you're in game sound, film sound, studio sound, forensic audio, whatever you do. You still got to, you know, hang your sign out somewhere to let people know what you're doing. And creating a website or a Facebook page, yeah, that's one aspect. Um, and how much time do you devote to it? Because we all know there's work to be done daily, especially, you know, uh, I'm getting ready to go on spring break vacation. And, you know, the minute you let people know that you're going on vacation, it's like, it's like old businesses putting out the going out of business sign, you know, everything must go. People uh, tend to, you know, flock to you. Oh, you're going out of town? Oh, I got to get this done right before you go. Yeah, you and like five to ten other people. So um, anyhow, got to get the business straight. So what do you do? Well, you use the time in the day... This is a suggestion, you know, this is not, I'm not claiming this is the only way, but use the time in the day that is not being used for audio. I mean, when you get up in the morning, get up a little extra early, 30 minutes, an hour, make two cups of coffee back to back and knock those back and sit back with a laptop and do what you need to do on your business. You know, whether it's billing, um, whether it's paying bills, uh, whether it's Doing a little uh, marketing, you know, whatever your marketing plan is. If it's word of mouth, well, then you should be putting dates on the calendar to get out maybe and go see bands or meet people for coffee. But do something. You got you to gotta put that those extracurricular activities on the calendar. And that could definitely help you be a little more successful in the long run. So think about it. 
Email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com, if you've got ideas. Love to hear them. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know, if you don't know them, is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Let's talk to Doug McBride here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Thanks. I know of you in a, in a couple of different ways. I know your name through Brad Wood, who a couple episodes ago hooked us up with Hans Decline, Mastering Engineer. I also know it because I think either you or I friended each other on Facebook. Awesome. Brad says great things about you. He says that uh, you've been running your studio for about 25 years. Let's go back to the beginning, you know, beyond four-track experiments and stuff like that. Where did audio as a profession really become a reality for you? 
Well, I started as a songwriter. So I had, you know, like you say, four track and then got an eight track format that would record eight tracks onto a cassette. But I figured out that I liked the production process and, and then realized that most of my favorite producers were also engineers. So then I'm OK, I guess I need to learn the engineering side of things. So, yeah, I wrote a lot of songs and was focused on that for a long time and learned certain things, I guess, about production just from that experience. But then started right after college. I did a report in college on trends in the music industry. And I got to interview a bunch of people that were involved at that time, including Jim Tulio. I don't know if you know Jim. I don't, no. He's been around for years and he's a respected guy. So Jim put in a word for me, helped me get a job as an intern at CRC. So in 90, I interned for two or three months and then got a job as an assistant and kind of climbed through their process till I was an engineer and was there for three years, although it was 80 to 90 hours a week. (laughs) So it was kind of like... Kind of like six years. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Out of that process, what were some of the early lessons that really stood out for you? Well, I had uh, one thing was I remember Hank Newberger, who was the studio manager at at CRC. I made it clear I wanted to work on music and not on jingles and voiceovers and commercials because CRC did a lot of that also. So I started down that track. And then at one point, a job opened up on the commercial side and it paid better than what I was getting paid and it involves going home every night at seven or seven thirty. seemed kind of appealing. So I brought it up to him and he's like, you know, if you want to make records, then don't switch over because you'll get used to having your evenings off. You'll get used to having your weekends off. You'll get used to the predictableness. But if you want to, if you really want to make records, then stick with this path, you know, the, the music path, which was late nights and work weekends and uh, at that time, I, I was assisting quite a bit for Steve Albini because he was doing his tracking in Studio 4. And we I worked with him in all, all the studios, actually, which was a lot of fun. But Steve would come in with a band and would set up and get sounds on Friday night, you know, starting at like 5.30 in the afternoon on Friday, and then get everything sounding good and headphones, everything set, and then come back Saturday and do the recording Saturday and Sunday. So they would burn the candle, you know, work like 12 to 13 hours a day. And then I'd be exhausted by the time Monday came around and then it was time to start working. (laughs) So it was a lot of hours, but a great opportunity and and, uh, some terrific music and some fun was had along the way. Did you happen to know uh, Manny Sanchez? Absolutely. Yeah. Manny, Manny interned for me briefly many, many years ago. And then he went to CRC for like three years and then came back and worked for me for three more, three more years. Okay. Cause I, I remember Manny talking about CRC. Uh, he's been on the show and yeah. How long did your stint there at CRC last? Three years. And what was the next stop for you? I did my business plan, if you will, while working at CRC, kind of in off time. And so I started Gravity immediately, basically after I quit CRC. And that was in the summer of 93. And in that business plan, first of all, a large majority of studio owners, engineers, producers don't necessarily put together a business plan for a studio. Everybody just goes, well, we'll just get some gear in a space and, you know, jump in and there's, it's kind of haphazard. Tell me about your process of putting that together. And can you expand on that a, a bit? Do you remember? I Sure. Absolutely. You know, my parents both had their own small businesses. So entrepreneurial efforts were kind of a fine art in our, my family of origin. The way I looked at it, I wanted to flesh it out, flesh it out on paper. And before I take myself out of what was a good job. You know, I was the young rock engineer at CRC 
and was uh, getting some good calls. I spent three months with Izzy Stradlin from Guns N' Roses on his record and a number of projects that were enviable gigs. But I wanted to start producing because I'd done all this songwriting. So that was the impetus for starting the business so that I'd be able to get the creative buzz, you know, help write the songs, help play a few instruments on the projects and stuff like that. So I just kind of fleshed it out onto a business plan and tried to get a sense of how can I pull this off? You know, I didn't have a bunch of cash to work with. So I, I sold all my instruments and amplifiers and my motorcycle and sold everything I had. And uh, I got five grand from my grandfather. So that was helpful. But it was basically a total of 17 grand I used to start Gravity. And so it was a Mackie console and ADATs and <laughs> not a whole lot more. It was a kind of a sparse setup. By the same token, since I was essentially a professional engineer by that time, I knew what to buy and what to spend the money on, you know. In the business plan, what were you banking on for clients? How were you how were you planning the business itself aside from the, the gear purchase? I had a few clients that Hank was comfortable letting me finish, like projects that he he didn't mind me finishing at Gravity that were originated at CRC. So that was cool of him. But other than that, in those days I, I felt more comfortable going to shows and going to bars and meeting people that way. And so I was a little more, I guess, uh, social than I became later in life. And so I met a lot of artists that way. But I can't underscore the fact that Wicker Park was really full of musicians at that time. Like it was just every other person you'd meet was a musician. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of creative energy and there, there has been, continued to be, but it was an unusual neighborhood back then. It's a little quirkier than it has become. This was a space that you were renting, right? That's kind of an interesting story, but yeah, I rented it um, and got a what's called a, a right of first refusal from the guy that I rented it from. So since I was going to be doing a build-out, and it's not wise to do a build-out in a rented space because you don't can't take it with you. Right. So, so I had a, a right of first refusal written into my lease so that if he decided to sell the building in the future, I could match his offer. As it ended up, it was about four months into, four or five months into the studio, we'd we're really having some success with Veruca Salt. The demos to get them going. And then the pumpkins came in for, I think they came in twice for three weeks each time. Today hit the charts, you know, during that time we, they were in the first time. So they were really popping. After that, you know, gravity became kind of a known quantity quickly. And so the owner of the building decided to take advantage of that. And he advertised the building as, you know, three flat that includes the studio where this mesh and pumpkins record. <laughs> And so then he had, I had other studio owners, but also like record labels interested in buying the building and coming through, interrupting my sessions to look at the space. And it was driving me crazy. But then it's kind of a funny story, but long story short, I was able to block the sale of the building. And then I was able to come up with financing. At that time, I was, a, I was actually able to get a special low down payment mortgage because Wicker Park qualified as a less developed neighborhood. So they're trying to encourage development in downtrodden neighborhoods. So I got a 5% down and a good situation to pull off a mortgage. But it also, yeah, indicated that there was no more fun time. It was like I became kind of an adult overnight, <laughs> largely. Can you explain just a little bit, how does one block the sale of a building from their landlord? Yeah, so that's what I was, when I mentioned the right of first refusal, that's what I was talking about. So basically what that means is I'll rent this, but I, I need to invest in the property in order to have it suit my needs. So I'm sort of committing my business to this rented property. So a right of first refusal means that if he decides to sell the building and then he gets an offer, then once that offer is official and like on paper and it's real, 
then he has to, by law, let me know that there's an offer for X amount of money. And then I have 30 days to come up with that and sign a contract with him to pay him that amount of money. So it kind of saved my butt. It would have been really disruptive, of course, to have to move the business, you know, because <laughs> it did take a little bit to set up. Right, right. Okay, so you blocked it, but that contract that was in place as you signed the lease. So does he have to come up with proof that he has a legitimate offer or? Yeah, yeah. He has to have a, an official offer. Okay. He can't just call you up and go, hey, Doug, yeah. we're selling the building. They want two, one million, $1 million dollars. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you managed to get the building and wow, what a, a score with the low down payment and a favorable interest rate, I assume, on the mortgage for the building. It was very scary and intimidating at the time, but of course, in the long run, it ended up being nothing but good. As you say, the fun time ended and it became like serious. Was there a shift in your head as far as like, oh, okay, well now, now this is for real. I own this building or the bank owns it for the time being. Right. You know, I've always had kind of a character living on the side of my shoulder telling me that I need to work harder. <laughs> it's like the ghost of my father or something. So I've always kind of had a work ethic. And, and when I was at CRC, I, like I said, I was working just absolutely insane hours. So when I started Gravity, I actually was able to only work 70 hours a week. <laughs> so <laughs> it was uh, helped fuel the success of the studio that I was booking it six days a week, sometimes seven days a week, and just going and going and going. It's that classic Midwest work ethic. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That was in what year? When did you buy the building? 95. 95. Okay. Tell me about the trajectory between then and now. What what are some of the big milestones in terms of business and, and victories that have occurred for you? Well, let's see. The month that I moved in, Billboard had a cover, and I guess it was September of 93, that said Wicker Park colon Cutting Edge Music's New Capital. That's what it was. And uh, it had a picture of Wicker Park, uh, of a map of, of the neighborhood. And the studio was basically right in the middle of the map of the neighborhood. <laughs> and so it was really, I, I'd been coming to Wicker Park quite a bit because bands I was producing many of whom were on modest budgets, and et cetera. They could afford to have a rehearsal space in this neighborhood. So that's kind of why the band's headed to the neighborhood. So I knew the neighborhood and, and kind of plugged into it. But in terms of just the trajectory of the studio, you know, once you sign that lease and you're off and running, what were some of the challenges, but what were some of the victories as well that occurred? You know, the Pumpkins experienced success. And between the Veruca and the Pumpkins, we got a lot of bands that were somewhere in, in those uh, areas. You know, I think that's kind of common that when a studio experiences success with a particular artist, then you get other artists that are appreciative of that band. You know, you can't always decide exactly who is going to book your studio. You know, you got to kind of go with it. But luckily, I really enjoyed both those bands. So we had a lot of really good bands as a result that were coming in right off the bat. And we were they were getting signed to major labels. One of the most surreal things that happened was the doorbell rang in 94 and it was gary gersh from geffen from Records. geffen yeah yeah and he was he had nirvana and he had sonic youth or something i think he had a, he, he was huge and he just pulled up in front of the studio he knocked on the door and i invited him in he took a look around and he said you've obviously got your finger on the pulse of the chicago scene what's next 
And he literally wanted me to like plug him in and show him what's next. And I did the best I could. I played some projects I was working on at that time. And he was there for a total of like 45 minutes. And then he just got back in his limo and took off. I just thought that was so bizarre. <laughs> I still think it's bizarre. That is bizarre. Yeah. You don't hear that story very often. A little bit of a fact-finding mission on his part. I guess, I mean, he could have sent someone else, too. That was the main thing that occurred to me. But yeah, who knows? He was probably in Chicago for some other reason. Thought he'd stop by. Now, the, I guess the other another piece was that when I was at CRC... I did a demo. I was supposed to engineer Edie Brickell's second album, I guess, with Paul Simon producing because they had just gotten married. And that was awfully exciting opportunity. And then they found out she was pregnant. And so they pushed the album back six months and then did it in New York eventually. So I never got to work with them. But because the project canceled with like three days notice and they'd booked like a month, uh, I got the Studio 5, the SSL room at CRC. Hank said, I know you've been wanting to work on recording your own stuff so you can have the studio evenings for this 10-day period. And so I just recorded my own stuff and, you know, brought the Wurlitzer piano into the control room and, you know, just pieced it all together and made this demo. And so then Trina Woltz, who was working at Comtrack at that time, she shopped it and got interest from Atlantic Records. So I had this interest in my songs as an artist, but when I was, I was talking to Mitchell Cohen, I believe was the A&R guy, and I, I would express to him, I'm starting my own studio and I have every bit as much energy around producing as I do around being an artist. So... I'm just going to kind of follow the plan here. And he said, okay, well, if you're going to be a producer and start a business, that's something totally different than than being available to us as a signed artist. And I was like, well, yeah, my friends are engineers. So if you want to give me a few months to get the business going, I can book the studio in order to finish up the demos. He wanted to have 20 songs in the can and I'd given him five, I think. And I had recordings of another hundred, but they were four track recordings, you know, that needed to be fleshed out just a bit. But then... The next time I heard from him was about six months later, and he said, yeah, I'm hearing your name, but it's not as an artist, <laughs> it's as, <laughs> as an engineer producer. So that just fell away, and, and I didn't mind because, I, like I said, I had just as much energy around producing. Was that a little bit of a, of a tug of war inside you to make that decision of being producer over being a, an artist? You know, the it wasn't, and the reason it wasn't is because... I had yet to be diagnosed generalized anxiety. So with anxiety, the performing becomes arduous. It's not something you look forward to. I was comfortable playing in front of 30, 40, 50, 80 people, but I didn't necessarily enjoy playing in front of any more than that. So I could probably get used to or you know, somehow medicate myself to get through performances in order to make this work. But it sure would be easier if I could just make the recordings and uh, you know, not have to play live. So you, you, you basically felt more at home in the studio. Yeah, absolutely. Being the person behind the scenes. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. What were some of the challenges for you running your studio over the years? Were there any, any obstacles that showed themselves and how did you deal with those? Well, you know, I guess for one thing, 
any business that's 25 years old, there were ups and downs. There were periods of time where we were busy doing exactly the projects we wanted to. And then periods of time where we were just hurting to pay the bills and, and they kind of vacillated and uh, to a certain degree, always have to a certain degree, although we're in, we're in a good stretch for the last five years. So there's always ups and downs and uh, other stuff that along the way, uh, we, we got hassled by the city in the late 90s. It's kind of a long story, but basically Chicago back in those days was a, a little more corrupt than it is now. And so there were some people trying to muscle me out of the building, you know, try to take over the building after I owned it. So we had city inspectors coming on a regular basis and kind of harassing us. And so that was a, wow. that wasn't much fun. Yeah, that wasn't much fun. And that's a whole nother story. And then in 96, I started working with Michael Lippman management and I worked with them for two or three years. They introduced me to a few projects, but generally we, we kept missing each other. For instance, they were real excited about What's Rob Thomas's old band? Matchbox 20. Matchbox 20. Yeah. So my manager also managed Rob Thomas and he had this band called Matchbox 20 and they, Clive Davis was involved with this and he basically was like, listen, this is going to happen. This, this project's going to be a hit. I've got it kind of preordained by Clive, which I think he very well may have, and it seems to have worked. But the demos that he sent, the songs were all like seven minutes long. It was kind of like a jam band except none of the players were exceptional. <laughs> so the songs were, I didn't hear anything that was real exciting from a songwriting standpoint. And the playing was average. And then the songs were too long and needed to be overhauled. So I basically said no thanks to that when it sold 10 million. <laughs> and then he sent a project that I did think that I would like, which was Kid Rock. But it, Kid Rock's very early stuff was more hip hop. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like he was a hip hop artist, not completely unlike Eminem, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that, it was interesting idea, except that he had a circus already, you know, a posse, and his bunch of hangers on, there were about 12 of them. And there was already just a lot of shenanigans involved with it. And so I realized I couldn't do the project at Gravity because it would be just too much liability and not enough room. And so when I when they asked me to put together a budget, I, I put CRC as the studio. And of course, the numbers doubled. And that took me out of position to do that project. So I was bummed at the time, but he seems to have turned into a knucklehead. So I don't feel bad now. <laughs> but um, uh, so with regard to the managers, they were like, okay, we're, we're not hitting here. And I said, well, I, Chicago's full of terrific artists. You know, this is 96 and there are just so many. So I sent them recordings I'd made with Verbo, Dovetail Joint, and Cupcakes, which were three Chicago bands that were really good at that time that I'd recorded and produced. They said they didn't hear anything from any of them. They like, didn't hear any hits from any of the three bands. And within the next 12 months, all three of those bands were signed to major label deals. <laughs> and of course, with other producers. So that was really frustrating because I felt like I was right. They were deserving of being signed to record deals and I should have been producing them. So I kind of was frustrated with that. But I ended up working on a project for about six months with a band called Frog Pond. They were a, a band out of Kansas City and it was right at the end of the era of the budget. <laughs> so we had a like a, a large traditional major label budget to work with. And so I was able to buy the Neve. We had a Neve 8058, you know, Studer 827 and a whole bunch of outboard gear and was able to do a lot with the cash from that project. It helped Gravity a great deal. And then following that, there, there were about two years where maybe half of our work was with major label artists that I was producing. Then came 9-11. Gravity was kind of a 
hit by 9-11, I guess. On a literal level, it was an interesting side note, was I was working with this band from from Dublin, and they were supposed to arrive on September 13th or 14th, I think, Monday, something like that. And after Twin Towers, the drummer's wife said, you can't go. We have kids. It's reckless to get on a plane right now. So uh, the project almost got shelled, and they were, they were booked for like three weeks. And so I got Dave Psychotic, a friend of mine who's a fabulous drummer. I got him to agree to play on the project, and the three other members of the band flew over. I just remember, as anyone, any one of us that lived in the United States at that time remembers, and it was kind of a tender time for the country. And having these Irishmen uh, at the studio was really interesting because I remember what they described. They said, it's kind of like uh, watching your little brother go through something that you didn't want to have to go through, but you had. So their point was like they had seen the, the violence in Ireland and experienced that when they were younger. And now America being their little brother, uh, which I guess is a way that some UK people think of America, to see us kind of go through this terrorism also was it was interesting to see them experience it from that way. Uh, as far as those periods of time where business has been challenged from lack of work, what do you do with the staff? How do you prepare for that? You know, I've always, the way I've set it up is that I pay the guys hourly. And so when times are, are tough, you know, they've, they're going to experience it with me, you know? Um, but then when times are good, they're going to experience it with me also. So the feast or famine that I experience as a business owner, I kind of share with my engineers. And so that's sometimes been difficult for guys and sometimes not. You know, I, I encourage them to tuck away some cash when we're super busy so that they can cover the short time. But additionally, I suppose there have been times over the years where we've had enough business for me, but not enough for another engineer, for two guys. And so uh, there were a couple times where guys had to leave because there just wasn't enough work. There were also times where I'd switch guys from engineer over to studio manager. I'd have, okay, you focus on bringing in work or focus on some other side of things. Over the years, we've had a lot of changes on the team, but over the last four years, really, we've had the same team, which has been just fabulous. Have you always acted as the hiring manager for the studio? I guess, you know, we've Basically, there's are six guys on staff and then interns. So it's not that big a company even now. But I'd say maybe half the time, I guess, is the answer to the question. When when uh, we're going through a busier period of time, I'll be able to pull away from anything that's like business-oriented and just be able to focus on being creative or mastering, which I don't consider quite as creative, but it is in its own way. And then I suppose that's been another side of things, has been diversifying the business we, in 2004, I believe, we built the second studio, which is built for mastering. And that's been a good experience, watching that grow as a, kind of a second business under the same roof. And do you ever diversify into other audio disciplines? Like, I know that when you were at CRC, you made it clear that you didn't want to get into jingles and voiceovers, but does Gravity deal in voiceovers? Over the last three or four years, the team here have, have shown an interest in accepting whoever wants to be here, you know, basically. So I haven't been involved with those, but we I know we have had some some voiceover projects and some books on tape kind of thing, you know. Like mm -hmm. um it's it's nice because they tend to be steady clients, you know, they'll be here for five hours once a week or five hours once a month. And I can think of a couple folks that I have never worked with them myself, but I've seen them here for two or three years or four years 
And so we kind of become friends just in the hallways and in the lounges, you know. Back to our discussion of money, what has been in the course of, of Gravity uh, over the last 25 years, have you had a very consistent approach to money in terms of saving and investing back in the business and all that? Are there any things that you've, hard lessons you've learned along the way? Yeah. You know, one that pops into my mind is something Steve Albini said to me when I was first getting going. And he he said, you know, just buy good stuff, buy gear that you're sure you're going to want to own in 10 or 20 years. If you've got to save up for it, then fine, save up for it. But don't buy stuff that'll be a stopgap. Don't buy mics or preamps or compressors or whatever that you know are not really that great. <laughs> because in the long run, you're just going to waste money. Save up and get the good stuff. So I, I kind of followed that advice. And when I think about the events that helped me get through the tough periods, I know that selling my vintage gear off in like 2002 and 2003 the budget structure needed to change. Like I needed to start charging a lot less money as a lot of studios had to kind of make that adjustment at the beginning of the century. So having all this sexy gear wasn't totally necessary anymore. People would come here for the for the outcome, not so much for the for the gear. And the freelance guys that used to come, because their budgets were half or even less than half, they had to look at setting up a home studio. Just there wasn't any choice for them, or they didn't feel there was. So since I didn't have to worry about having fancy gear for the sake of it, I could just really have a bare bone setup, which I did for six or seven years, I guess, at different points. That's interesting. And, and over the years, I'm sure you've you've bought and sold a lot of gear, especially starting out with a Mackie board at ADATS. I'm, I'm sure you're not on that setup anymore. Yeah, we, we had uh, we had the Mackie for like a year and a half. And then I got an AMEC big, which is a big upgrade. Once I got the forward, I think it was the forward. Uh, there was, I started doing some label work in 97. That was enough to buy the Neve console or at least get the... Uh, down payment, and I was financed that as well. The Neve was a big jump, you know, it's a $100,000 console, and it's a big time. Once we started down that road, that was about 10, 10 or 11 years we had that console. And then then we had the the Rupert Neve console. Basically, I, I had, along the way, I had two kids. Well, my wife and I, I had two boys. Uh, along the way, I, basically, I sold a Neve console uh, right around the birth of each child. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, um, uh, you know, it tells you how expensive kids are. Oh, yeah. I've got two, two boys myself. Yeah, so you know. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it, and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro-looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled.
sampley.app. Check it out. So after uh, after having the kids, it took a while for the studio to kind of build back up. And now we're we're kind of at a place, thankfully, that we've got a nice bunch of vintage gear like we used to. But I guess I'm a believer that, it, you know, most of it is really in the, the songs and the artists and the, the vibes and the relationship between the producer, engineer and, and the artists. And gear is kind of down the line in terms of what's really important. And I think that's maybe not as understood as it could be, but I don't listen to stuff that was recorded on less gear and go, oh, you know, I don't notice a difference really. <laughs> So you mentioned your kids, work-life balance, and how, how have you managed that over the years with, with family? Well, for starters, my wife and I, the first nine months we were married, I was working weekends and you know working six and a half days a week. And after about a year, she was like, if we're going to be married, then we have to be together. <laughs> you know? And so I, I said, okay, and I, I stopped working weekends. And that was in it was in 2001, I guess. So that was a big one. And I guess I had sort of forgotten what it was like to have a life outside of the studio. And that's when I really started to realize the importance of that. And then, you know, when you have kids, it's just a momentous, hugely influential time. And so I wanted to make sure that, that I was a good dad. And so I've just tried to book myself earlier. And basically my sessions are nine to five, Monday through Friday. And sometimes I have to work a weekend day here and there, but I try to be home for dinner as much as I can. One of the ways to do that is to have a staff. You know, if I didn't, you know, you can't have all this gear and have this mortgage on the building and everything and not be making money. Somebody's got to be making money. So that's where the staff comes in. And, and it's also just more fun to have people around and have a team and than it is to just be working alone. Well, in terms of the management style, have you done any reading or do you have any education on that? Or have you just kind of learned trial by fire on how to, you know, manage people and hire good people, et cetera? Yeah. You know, it's been a, I'd say that's been the, you know, the school of hard knocks on that side. When I was in college, I became the music director and then the general manager for our college radio station. So I had a staff of 200 or something, some pretty good sized thing. But I had some hard lessons. At one point, I remember there was like an intervention where my staff were like, "You're micromanaging us." <laughs> I didn't even know. I didn't even know what that was. But, but it was good to learn, and it was a good lesson. And and then you know, watching my parents handle their small businesses, and watching the way CRC did things, and you know, helped me come up with a way to go about things um, in terms of managing people. But it was it's still been rough at times. I kind of got into a habit of kind of just promoting from within. And then in terms of who started as an intern, it would be just kind of whoever the audio school sent my way, you know. But then probably five, six years ago, I guess, that I kind of had an aha moment and really started to think about who would be the best studio manager, you know, or at that time, I think it was studio manager slash other engineer. And I just went to a friend of mine and was like, hey, I'd love to see you do this. And I described described a gig that involved him managing as well as learning me kind of teaching him to engineer better. He went for it. And that was Tim Yamaya. And Tim was fabulous and kind of started a tradition of identifying people with, you know, high integrity, just top-notch people. And that's what we've, what we've had. So you own the building and you have for this 
period of time, are, is the building just the studio or are there other parts that you're able to rent to offset your costs? And Yeah, absolutely. That's an important piece too. Yeah, It's a three flat. The first floor is twice the size of the second and third floor. And so we're able to have two studios on the first floor. And then the second and third floor are apartments. And we have one apartment that's set up for bands or artists that are in town, you know, where they can rent it through Airbnb, but it's a setup where they can just go upstairs when they're done. And then uh, I've got tenants on the second floor, but that's you know, something we can count on to help pay the bills. So is is the building actually a, uh, you said it's a flat, is it, is it a traditional home in, in as far as a... It's a three flat. So it, it's like a, you know, it's an urban, urban three flat. So it's just 24 feet wide by 120 deep, just a big box. And there's like, like I said, there's a two bedroom apartment on one floor and a three bedroom apartment on the other. And there's just a stairwell heading up. Oh, I see. So it's mainly like something where you'd see sometimes a, a retail establishment on the bottom floor, but then two, you know, two units above that are living. Is that exactly. Right? And, that, and and that's what it is. It's zoned commercial from the first floor. We, we just got glass brick in front because we don't have anything we want to show people. You know, all our neighbors have glass for the front so they can get in some more sunlight and show off what they're selling. <laughs> Studio here, please break in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> where does the work the majority of the work for Gravity come from? Is it word of mouth or do you put any money into marketing the studio? You know, I think it's all word of mouth. Yeah. Over the years, we've sometimes had an ad in the Illinois Entertainer, which is like a local local music paper. And that's about it uh, in terms of marketing. So yeah, it's been people who recorded here 10 years ago coming back or people here in the project we've worked on coming in for that reason. And it's people coming back. That's the whole key to the whole thing is if everyone leaves happy, then your business has kind of got to do well. If people want to find out more about you and the studio, they can go to gravitystudios.com, of course, which we'll put in the show notes for, for people to check out. Well, it's been great having you on and it'd be great at some point in the future to uh, meet in person. If I see you at a trade show, I'll come up and say hello. Sounds good. Sounds good. Look forward to it. All right. Thank you again, Doug. Doug McBride here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Want to thank everybody who helped out. That includes Anne Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme music, and Chuck Smith there on the voiceover. And uh, I want to thank you. Thanks for coming back week after week. It's always a pleasure to do this for you, and I will continue to do so. And uh, stay safe out there, friends, and take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about 
things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 